morning. It is wonderful to worship the Lord with you today. We are so glad that you have joined our family for worship, especially if you're here for the first time. Uh, my name is Jordan Erickson. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakewood, and we are so excited to be able to open his word with you today. Um, we are spending our summer in the Psalms seeking to answer life's relevant questions through God's word. And as we get started, I'd encourage you to go ahead and grab a copy of the scriptures and open up to Psalm 53. That's where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, let me ask you this question. What bothers you about our world? What do you see in your life that frustrates your soul? Is it injustice? Is it politics? Difficult people? The news, social media, school? Weekend driving on 371. We could probably come up with a nine-hour service just creating a complete list of the real-life brokenness and struggle that we see in the Brainerd Lakes area. And when we're faithfully following Christ, we find ourselves bothered, frustrated even, by the world around us. And it leaves us asking the question, why is this world so messed up? And the answer is simply sin and the corruption that seeps from it. See, every single thing that we see globally, nationally, in our personal lives that is wrong can be traced back to the great epidemic of sin. And the consequences of those sins are why, in fact, the world is so messed up. But as we watch, grieve, sometimes are even infuriated by the effects of sin on our world, it encourages us to the truth that faithful followers of Christ flee from corruption and to Jesus. With that, let's go ahead and read Psalm 53. This is what the word of the Lord says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who devour my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. This is some pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? And it makes sense. You and I, we are made in the image of God and God hates sin. So no wonder it bothers us. But as faithful followers of Christ, we must talk about sin. Because how do you address the problem if you don't understand what the problem is? And if we are going to flee from corruption, we need to know exactly what that corruption is. And Psalm 53 provides a great framework for us to understand it. The author of the psalm starts off in verse 1 using the character of the fool to highlight the root of sin and its consequences, not just in their lives, but the lives of those around him. And that root is what the fool says in verse 1, there is no God. 
In this statement, it's not just simply a denial of God's existence. The fool is not a fool because they're ignorant. No, this statement places the fool on the throne of their life. They believe that their destiny is theirs to control. All while saying, hey, look, God has no place in my life. I'm the one who calls the shots. The fool denies the existence of God in person and in authority while elevating themselves to his rightful status as king. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, and 23. The wicked, the fool, claiming to be wise, became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, sin and corruption are the exchange. They are the trade-off we receive when we believe that we should be in control of our own lives and destiny. And this is a dangerous game to play, church. You and I, humanity, we were never meant to be in control of our lives, and yet we do it all the time. It might not be in drastic fashion where we're constantly performing wicked deeds, but how often do we want to call the shots on our personal finances, right? I want to spend my money how I want to. How about the way that we spend our time? I want to do what I want, when I want. We often choose who we care about and how we care for them. We can demand to make all the decisions when we're spending time with our friends and family. In one area or another, we all find ourselves desiring to hold authority in our lives that is rightfully God's. And we would do well to be aware of when we are trying to share or sometimes outright take the throne from the Lord. Because you and I, We were meant to live in the freedom that comes from letting God be God. We worship the Lord who who knows us intimately, who knows the grand scale and vision of creation as well as the specific details. And the reason that we flee from corruption and to Christ is because we can trust him as a good king with good authority who is working out our lives for good and holiness. And even though we know that we can trust our good God, we still struggle with the temptation to sin. And we also know the unfortunate reality that rarely is sin ever done in a vacuum, right? We often define sin in student ministries when we preach at LSM that sin is the choices we make that hurt ourselves, others, and God. See, as sin personally corrupts the sinner, It also corrupts and hurts the world and people around them. In fact, this psalm says that sin is so far-reaching and so influential, it causes no one to do good. As the fool on the throne of their life commits sin, it tempts and corrupts others into sinning as well, to the point that verse 3 says they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Anybody in here ever been roped into a terrible idea before? I work with teenagers professionally, y'all. So, you know, and you always sit there and you go, I don't want to be involved in this. But then you go, wait, how did I get here? Maybe it was a home improvement project gone awry. You got voluntold to be in charge of an event. Maybe you did actually get roped into something that did compromise your moral integrity. And even though you never wanted to be there in the first place, you look around you and you go, what in the world did I do to get here? 
And sin has a way of doing that to us as well. Right? It deceives us into thinking that it can satisfy the cravings of our hearts. We see others and how happy they are, the stuff that they have, their relationships, and it's natural for us to want those things, right? Especially when they're good and they point us to Christ. But that's where sin creeps in and lies to us. It tells us that we can have all those things and more if we're just willing to compromise just a little bit until we end up in a place we never thought we would be. And that only escalates when we are around people who are actively encouraging us to sin. What's crazier still is that sin doesn't just corrupt the wicked, it also corrupts those who have seen God's goodness. Right In verse 2, God looks down from heaven. Remember, we don't worship a distant and uninvolved manager of the universe. We are worshiping the king of heaven and earth, and he is actively involved in his good creation. He created the world to dwell with you and I, and he desires for you to know him intimately and personally, just as he knows you. And because of this, people have seen and known God personally since the beginning of time. In Genesis 3, God is walking in the Garden of Eden looking for Adam and Eve. In Exodus 33, God speaks to Moses as one speaks to a friend. God countless times performs miracles and delivers Israel out of trouble, and he also speaks to them through the prophets and his word, and now you and I are inheritors of the Holy Spirit, where we get to see and communicate with the Lord in that way. People like you and I have seen God's goodness and interacted with it countless times. And yet when God looks down to see who understands him, to see if anybody knows how great life with him is now and forever, he finds no one who does. Because sin is so deceptive, so corrupting, that we have traded our real hope for a false one. We ask questions like, why have eternal life when I can go party now? Right? Why live in the peace that surpasses understanding when I can win this Facebook argument right now? I can go put that person in their place. Right? Why should I wait to be present with the Lord when there's cars and houses and lakefront to have, and all I need to do is compromise just a little bit to get them? And look, I'm not saying that it's bad to want nice things. It is only natural. One day, I will drive to church in my Pontiac Firebird with my son wearing our matching outfits. It's going to be so sweet. But what I am encouraging us to do, though, is to ask what we are compromising to get those things. What am I willing to give up to get what I want and where I want? Because the reality is, church, is that compromise will lead us to one of two outcomes. I will either flee from Jesus to the deceit and hollow joy of sin, or I will flee from sin and corruption to the real hope and true satisfaction of Jesus Christ. Am I exchanging the glory of the immortal God for my own corrupted wants? Or am I letting God be God and giving him the freedom and the authority to truly satisfy my soul? In verse 4, it gives us this clear illustration of just how bad compromising with sin can get. Those who are corrupt, those who work evil, devour people like bread. Now, this is a pretty strong illustration, but it's commonplace in society today. If you are the parent of a teenager, you know that they do not just eat, they devour. 
right? And devouring is another word for eating. And people choose to eat in order to nourish and care for their bodies. When we are hungry, we want to eat. Makes sense. So when Psalm 53 uses intense imagery like verse 4, it's communicating the reality that sin doesn't just corrupt the evildoer. It doesn't just corrupt the people around him. But there is a real consequence where other people, particularly vulnerable people groups, get hurt and are devoured by sin. When sinners are compromised with corruption, other people get hurt. Look at the vulnerable people in our world today. The poor, the widows and single parents, refugees, the unborn children and orphan, the list goes on and on. And they're often exploited as stepping stones with other people's compromises with sin, not quite unlike how we see them treated in God's word. They're forced into isolation in their town, sometimes even forced to go live outside of the city. They're prevented from accessing important resources like food and land and money. Their voice that they use to advocate for themselves is taken away. And we even see examples like Mark 10 where the vulnerable, like blind Bartimaeus, are rebuked for trying to seek out Jesus. Because in the eyes of those people, why would Christ want to see the blind, the beggar, and the vulnerable? And while the church has done incredible things in the name of charity or in the name of Christ for charity, right, just look at the demographics. There is no more generous people group than Christians. We would all probably admit that we could be more aware of the plights of the vulnerable people in our society and to respond to them the way that God's word calls us to over 500 times. Because sometimes we just don't quite know how to respond to the needy family on the side of the road. Sometimes we respond to poverty with political statements. Sometimes we seek the friendship of others with better stuff, more influence in the church and community, and we ignore, often even reject people who can't give us those things. And I give these examples not in judgment. I stand here in the pulpit and tell you I fall short constantly in this. But I bring them up and I offer it because God's word does know how to respond to those things. And God's word calls faithful followers of Christ to care for the vulnerable when the wicked exploit them in sin. Fleeing from corruption and to Christ means having a willingness to see the vulnerable and respond according to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because God is bothered by the neglect and exploitation of the vulnerable. So no wonder that when we are truly, faithfully following Christ, we would be bothered by those same things. While sin is seeking to devour the marginalized like bread, God is inviting us to go buy groceries for a needy family. He's telling us to offer some childcare or a ride for a parent working a double shift. Maybe it's buying water bottles for the homeless guy on the street. God, church, is inviting us to love our neighbors as ourselves, and it is not complicated. Because while this world is messed up and sin is trying to deceive us into a false hope, telling us to step on who we want, exploit who we want, to get what we think we need, Jesus Christ has something better. He is offering something different than the rest of the world. And in just four verses, we read how grave the full scope of sin is on our world. It corrupts us. It corrupts those around us. It hurts the vulnerable. It pits us against the living God. The situation is dire. 
and it leaves us asking the question, how in the world can we respond to this? What can we do about the sin that makes our world so messed up? Well, remember, we worship a good and powerful God who is involved in his creation. And verse 5 shows us his response to corruption. Let's go ahead and read it one more time. There they are, the wicked, in great terror where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. By way of another intense illustration, Psalm 53 makes it clear that God has one response to evil, to wickedness, to corruption, all of it, and that is through justice by his wrath. The wicked are in terror where there is no terror. Why? Because they're in the presence of God. Right, where the righteous stand in awe and joy at the coming of the Lord, because why would you need to fear a loving God if you're in right standing with him? Right? The wicked and corrupt, when they see God, they know that it is their undoing. The fool who once said, God has no place in my life, is now filled with regret for their own arrogance. We then see in the third uh, line of this verse, a scene that contrasts God's promise in Ezekiel 37, where God tells his prophet that the dry bones of his people, the righteous, will be raised back to life, where their souls will be refreshed and their bodies restored. But in Psalm 53, those who reject God, who compromise with sin, corrupting themselves, others, hurting the vulnerable, God rejects them and their bones will be scattered permanently. There will be no restoration for them, and instead they will be eternally separated from God under wrath and condemnation. And as culture tries to wage war with the church over the true meaning of the gospel, it's become very taboo to talk about sin and wrath. Because look, you can't be a loving Christian if you talk about sin, right? If God is love, how can he show his wrath upon sinners? That's not what a good God does. But the reality is, church, we should be uncomfortable talking about sin, right? If we believe the truth that all men and women are created in the image of the living God, and we believe that creation yearns to know God personally, no wonder we would have an adverse reaction to the sin that utterly disgusts God. He hates it. The conviction that we feel from our own sin and the sin around us is a reminder that God loves you enough to offer something better for you, that we should flee from our own corruption and to Christ. And while the imagery of verse 5 is rather extreme, even frightening for some of us, it does present a great opportunity to talk about the character of God. And I'd encourage us as we talk about his character to view God's wrath as an extension of his goodness and love for two reasons. The first is that God's wrathful response towards wickedness shows us that he's not content to let us destroy ourselves with our sin. Look, rarely do we ever enjoy receiving tough love at the hands of our friends, our parents, our mentors, but we do know the truth that the consequences of staying the same, staying stuck in whatever behavior we're in, is far worse than the momentary frustration and discomfort we receive from real talk with our loved ones. And in the same way that they love and desire better for us, we desire better for our kids, our spouses, our coworkers, our friends, and God does the same. 
right? In fact, God desires better for you so much so that he has established a consequence that matches the intensity and gravity of sin that's literally destroying us, right? Rather than letting you suffer aimlessly in your own harmful choices, God's trying to get your attention. In this psalm, he's trying to say, hey, look, there are real consequences for your sin. But because God is good, he wants you to flee from your sin, He wants you to flee from his wrath to the different and better life that he is offering you right now. The second reason that God's wrath shows his goodness is because it shows God as a fierce defender against sin. See, God doesn't just protect his people. He fights back against sin. He scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. When you're the victim of sin in any form, you desire justice. You want those who hurt you to have consequences for their actions. And when somebody defends you against evil or enacts justice on your behalf, it communicates that they care about you. If I can appeal to the parents in the room for a moment, have you ever experienced mama bear or papa bear come out when somebody's trying to hurt your kid? Or maybe you are the child and you have watched your parent defend you against something you knew was blatantly wrong. And you don't have to be a parent to experience this, right? If you have a sibling, a friend, anyone that you are close to, you feel a sense of loyalty to fiercely defend them from people who would try to cause them harm. And as we seek to fiercely defend those we love, God does the same, right? But it's through his greater response of wrath. He makes it clear to anyone who would try to afflict the righteous or the vulnerable, don't mess with my people. The poor and the needy, they're under the divine and just protection of the Lord. The widows, the orphans, the single parents, God's got their back. For those who desire to flee from corruption and to Christ, God not only offers them protection, but deliverance from their own sin and the sins of those around them. Because, see, without talking about sin and understanding how terrible it is, we can't appreciate how great God's protection and freedom is. Without understanding his wrath, we can't appreciate not only how fiercely God defends us against sin, but also the better life that he's offering us instead of it. There are real and grave consequences for continuing to live in and compromise with sin eternal separation from God, and eternal conscious punishment of his divine wrath. But when the world seeks to distort your view of God, saying that his wrath is not good, ground yourself in the truth that God is good because of his justice and wrath. Because that wrath, y'all, is not the final word. The Lord desires something better and different for you, and he is offering it to you today. And that brings us to verse 6, God's promise to his people. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. See, in ancient Israel, Zion was commonly associated with Jerusalem. And two important things happen in Jerusalem. It is where God dwelt via the temple, and it is also where the king of Israel reigned, most notably King David. And after five verses of showing just how messed up this world truly is, 
Psalm 53 takes a pivot and paints this beautiful picture of what salvation looks like. See, salvation is the promise kept by God in 2 Samuel 7, where the Lord tells David that his throne will last forever because there is someone coming who will reign forever. Salvation, church, comes from Zion in the person of Jesus Christ. God, looking down from heaven, seeing no one who does good, seeing our own compromises with sin, corrupting us, corrupting others, hurting the vulnerable, knowing that our own choices were leading us toward divine wrath, kept his promise to David by sending he who is most precious to him, his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, to die by shedding his own blood on the cross for your sins and mine, and then three days after his death, rising from the grave. And all who believe this truth and confess it with their mouths, they stand redeemed and righteous before God. There is no guilt or condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. And the fortune that's being restored, it is better than any earthly riches. Right? It is our inheritance of life now and life forever with the Lord. Church, Jesus Christ changes everything about this psalm, and it is awesome. Where the fool says there is no God and takes the throne of their lives, Christians welcome the authority and presence of Christ in their lives because they know it is good and freeing that God calls the shots. Where sin does vile deeds and abominable iniquity, where no one does good, Christ satisfies the desires of your heart and transforms your cravings to sin into desires of righteousness. Where sin does not seek after God, Jesus Christ personally sought you out and brought you back home and turned your eyes back to the Father. Where sin corrupts and leads to compromise, Christ leads to repentance, holiness, and freedom. Where sin devours the vulnerable like bread, Jesus Christ stands in defense of them and invites his disciples to do the same. And where God's wrath is an act of goodness meant to deal with the powers of sin and death, it is meant to point to the ultimate good in Christ who destroys sin and death once and for all. Jesus Christ changes everything. In our lives now, he rescues us from this messed up world by loving us extravagantly, by giving us hope and joy to truly satisfy our hearts, working our lives out for our good and for his glory. And for those who believe in him and call upon his name, we look forward to life forever with him. Where there is a world waiting for us free from pain and suffering, sin and death, where we will be present with the God who created us, who knows us intimately, who cares enough to hold us to a higher standard, and also loves us enough to rescue us from our own sin and corruption. And maybe you're here today, and you're considering Christianity. Maybe you just have some questions that you're wondering about. Look, I'd love to chat with you about that, because I don't want you to miss out on the opportunity to know Christ personally as friend, Savior, and Lord. All it takes is the belief in that gospel and the professing, the saying out loud that I believe the truth of Jesus Christ. This world is messed up. 
right? Sin runs rampant around us. Vulnerable people get caught in the middle of compromises with sin. But we know the truth that there is freedom and deliverance in the person of Jesus Christ. And because of his death and resurrection, we can, as faithful followers of Christ, flee from corruption and to Jesus. Find your salvation in him. Find your rest in him. He will not fail us. He has a different and better life waiting for you right now. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, how sweet it is to know that even when the world around us looks the way that it does, how messy, how broken, how hurtful it is, Lord, not even the gates of hell can stand against you and your people. Lord, that you have not only freed us from this world, but you have freed us personally from our own sin and corruption by sending your son Christ to save us. Lord, my great prayer for our church today is that your church today is that we would live in the reality that we are free that Jesus Christ is the one who has our lives in the palm of his hand. Not our sin, not our corruption, but the one who changes everything. And that we would be so motivated by your extravagant love for us that we would desire to go out into the world and share that truth by living it out and proclaiming it with our mouths. Lord, as we finish up our time here in worship, would you um, hear all of the praises that are so rightfully yours? Um, would you help us to uh, feel a sense of great joy singing praises to you? Thank you, God, for loving us first. Thank you for rescuing us from sin and the pit of hell. We are grateful that you are our God and we are your people. It's in your name that we love, praise, and give the glory to. Amen. Amen.